What exactly is possible in a 5G world? And how could this new technology change our lives? Today's bonus episode explores these questions and more in a panel discussion recorded at the recent alumni event, Humans and Interconnectivity. The discussion is moderated by Christine McWebb, director of the Stratford School of Interaction Design and Business, and it includes perspectives from three expert panelists. Alexander Brock is responsible for technology innovation programs at Rogers Communications. Catherine Burns is a systems design engineering professor and tier one Canada research chair in human factors and healthcare systems. And finally, Leah Zhang Kennedy is an assistant professor at the Stratford School, where she teaches user experience design. Keep listening to hear their thoughts and insights on our highly connected 5G future. So let's get started. And um, Alexander, I would I would uh, like to start with you, if that is okay. Um, I think the last 18 months um, of the pandemic, of course, we have to start with the pandemic, right? Um, has, has shown that, that the, our physical and our virtual worlds are getting closer and closer uh, together. Um, and sometimes they actually now seem intertwined, right? So we often have meetings where we might be sitting with um, a couple of people safely distanced in our office, and then we have several others on, on the screen, and nobody really thinks twice about that. It's, it's become a reality. Um, and I think the, the uh, kind of the separation of the physical and the virtual spaces is becoming less and less clear. So we often inhabit uh, both worlds simultaneously. 5G technology will take the connection and interaction between the physical and the online or virtual worlds to yet another level. To start us off then, Alexander, could you give us a bit of background about what 5G technology actually is? And assuming that we are now in the number five, there probably were four generations <laughs> before this. Um, how does it work? And where are we at in its implementation and rollout? Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you. Um, it's a great loaded question, multifaceted. So um, to understand 5G, you do actually have to do a bit of history. So we'll, we'll take you on a quick history lesson on that one in that, you know, this the industry has been around for about 35 years. We started with analog phones that just did voice. In other words, you could literally take your phone and you were not tied to a telephone line um, and you could you know, put it in your car or walk, eventually walk around with it. Um, they were incredibly expensive. Uh, they didn't last very long uh, in terms of the, uh, the battery life was you know, in minutes, uh, unless it was in your, in your car. But it completely, it freed people from being tied to places. And that's been the genesis of everything since then, is removing the, uh, the, the, the tie-in to a particular location. Um, 2G arrived and brought us digital communications, so better quality voice. It also, more importantly, brought us messaging, you know, the ability to start actually doing text messaging uh, and other forms of messaging, and people like uh, BlackBerry, et cetera, who, who developed all sorts of killer apps to do that. And the really first generation of the mobile internet, which was very separate, wasn't terribly good, but it gave us the, the beginnings of the mobile internet. 3G arrived in 
uh, the early 2000s. It was the really the, the, the beginning of what we've seen in that it provided data, real data that you could actually you know, do something useful on. Um, it was a bit of a kludge uh, in that it was two networks sort of bolted together, uh, a, a voice network and a packet switch data network, and they sort of worked together. Um, had a reasonable amount of capacity, but not huge, and lots of latencies. So video was not a great, you know, particularly well. Uh, you know, it didn't work particularly well. We, you know, four G arrived in the late two thousands. Um, you know, you, uh, and it was the beginning of uh, real mobility capabilities for people, for places, for things. Uh, machine to machine, which is now morphing into the Internet of Things. <clears throat> um, it was an entirely packet switch network, it still is, um, and it provides uh, a significant amount of data, but it's still fairly limited in terms of the amount of its carrying capacity. And that's a legacy of the technology um, in terms of how much bandwidth can be managed on a 4G radio channel. Which brings us to 5G. And, you know, these generations of technology take around 10 years, five, 10, depending on your point of view, to, to, to work their way through what people have decided to write as specifications, then standards, then taking it to the international uh, regulatory bodies, then getting it through in terms of spectrum, et cetera. It takes a long time. So for those who want to ask about 6G later on, it's 10 years away. Um, in terms of 5G, though, it was a step change. It wasn't just another, okay, a little bit of evolution and let's move forward. Um, the point about 5G was it, it was designed around, as I say, a data network that carries voice and data and video and everything. So it was a fundamental shift in terms of how we run wireless networks and how they are constructed and architected, etc. It's a data network. It just happens to be wireless. The point about 5G and what it, what it was ultimately, and there's lots of facets to it I'll go into, is that it is about seamless connectivity. It's about taking things that used to be tied to wires and making them wireless. And why is that possible? It's because a lot of the capabilities that went into those specifications were about breaking all of the shackles, for want of a better way of putting it, about wireless technology, more bandwidth, lower latency, lower power, the ability to, uh, to uh, customize the network. 4G and its predecessors, pretty much everybody gets the same thing. Uh, you may get a bigger or a smaller bucket of data or a bigger or smaller number of minutes of voice, which is now no longer the case. But the reality is everybody gets roughly the same thing. 5G, the fundamental aspect to it is it's customizable. You can start, and we're just starting to do this, to be able to look at a wireless network as custom to the application and the service and the customer um, that wants to use it. And essentially craft the connection to be what do you need it to be. In other words, is it a very low power uh, connection for a sensor sitting in the middle of a mining operation that's sitting there just saying, yes, I'm okay, or no, something's changed, to a very high bandwidth uh, network for remote connectivity for digital health, for example. 
and all of the things in between. And so the whole point of 5G is it is about seamless connectivity. It's about seamless mobility. And it's about the real time capabilities of wireless. That's the other fundamental thing is we've shifted from a sort of on demand world to it's always on, always connected with scalable amounts of bandwidth and capabilities on, you know, on the basis of real time. The latency is now every bit as good as what you can find on a wireline network. And that means that things that were traditionally you couldn't do over wireless, well, now you can. And there's, again, lots of pieces, components to this in terms of you can now access a lot wider channels on spectrum than you could on the previous generations. You know, previous generations were limited to a five megahertz wide channel. I mean, GSM started with 200 kilohertz, which is a very small amount of data, where now 4G is 20 megahertz, and uh, 5G is taking that to 100 megahertz and 200 megahertz wide channels, and the combination of paired and unpaired spectrum. So enormous amounts of flexibility in terms of what you can do with it. Do you want coverage? Do you want capacity? Do you want low latency? Do you want low power? Do you want an in-building system that controls a drone doing uh, logistics work inside a building? Never sees the outside, just runs around the building counting things or at a port. Again, the point about 5G is customize it to the application on both licensed spectrum and unlicensed spectrum. So it's incredibly an incredibly flexible set of standards and now capabilities that are being rolled out. We don't. So with, with, please. Yeah. So with with, with that kind of a <clears throat> high level of flexibility, um, there is a huge and a vast potential for applications, right? I mean, you've you've already named quite a few of them, um, and I know that uh, Rogers, because it has the partnership with the University of Waterloo, which is great, um, is quite involved already with a lot of research projects. Um, and I'd just like to maybe turn it over to Catherine and, and just hear a little bit more about the types of research projects, um, maybe not tied to, to Rogers necessarily, but in, in terms of uh, 5G technologies that, are, that you are involved in, Catherine, because I, I know that in terms of uh, digital health, which is one of your areas of expertise, um, you have been working on these types of um, really breakthrough technologies for quite some time. Okay, great. Thanks, Christine. So I do work in the area of health, and I work quite specifically on how people interact with our healthcare system, uh, you know, which I, I find a really exciting area to be in. Uh, so I, I think when we look at what 5G is going to mean in the future in the space, it's really about service delivery, right? Uh, it's really about how do we bring different kinds of services to people. So we all saw through the, the pandemic that our doctors pivoted very quickly to virtual visits, right? Um, they had to. Uh, and we all got used to talking to our doctor on the phone or by email or on video visits, right? And we knew they restricted their services to the times where they really had to see us in person. This seems to be sticking, right? Um, my doctor sent me a note like just a week or so ago saying, yeah, these are the kinds of things you'll see in person. Everything else <laughs> is going to be virtual, right? So we've gone through kind of a step change in technology very quickly. It was coming anyways, but we shuddered through it really fast. Um, and this is where I see uh, things developing in, in the future with 5G is this change in service delivery. 
Yeah. So when we think about healthcare, we start thinking about what kind of services does it make sense to offer um, virtually? Um, do we have opportunities for remote monitoring? Are there ways that we can deliver services to people in their home um, or where they are instead of at the hospital? I'm going to emphasize that hospitals are very expensive places to provide services. And right now there are service hubs. There's a lot of things people go to the hospital for um, that they don't need to be going exactly to the hospital for. Okay, There are services that could be offered in a bunch of different ways. And as we have learned, uh, it's maybe even safer to do to not go to the hospital for for some of the things where you say that we don't necessarily have to be there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, I, I you know, uh, I don't want to come back to to COVID uh, all the time, but it really has it has changed a lot of. I mean, it's it's been a complete game changer, um, especially uh, when it comes to digital health. I I would agree that um, we are almost approaching a. A, a paradigm shift when when it comes to what is possible and what we thought was possible. Um, so a lot of things, the same with e-learning, for example, a lot of things that we thought, you know, it's going to take a long time to get there. Well, we're there, yeah. <laughs> right? We're there. Yeah. Um, so, so for yeah, me, the research questions are, how do we keep that patient experience going? Um, how do you trust um, your experience when it's happening through these virtual worlds, so to speak. Um, you know, how do we keep that interaction with your physician going correctly or your other kind of healthcare providers? Um, how do we maintain that experience over these new bandwidths? Uh, you know, and actually yeah. I have another project right now and it's about how do we um, make sure people secure, okay? So I'm gonna talk a little bit about, a little bit about security, okay, in that, um, this is something that I think that we have a bit of concern about, okay, is that as we get more and more in more and more virtual environments and more and more um, devices or remote monitoring devices, uh, we actually have a few more opportunities. The human is often kind of the weakest point in the security chain. Okay? And so how do we teach ourselves and teach our customers, clients, patients uh, to be wary and to be ready? How do we design those technologies to take that risk out of it? Those are the kinds of questions we're looking at right now. Yeah, that's that's great. So let's let's actually, if I could just pick up on a couple of things um, that you said. So the the one thing is that the human factor is still crucial, mm -hmm. um, and then there's the question, of course, of of privacy, uh, which I would like to get to um, as well in in this uh, panel because I think that's obviously at the forefront of um, uh, everybody's thought is how do we deal with uh, uh, privacy and security issues. But before we get to that. Let's just go back for a minute to the, the human factors question. So, I mean, we, we also see this with, with the students um, that they, in a lot of ways, uh, embrace new technology, virtual technologies. Um, they are really interested in learning more about 5G technologies. But at the same time, they still crave being together and being in the same space physically, right? So this is again, kind of like the virtual and the physical worlds coming together. So I'm wondering, Leah, if, if you can, um, I know that you've worked on a couple of projects with the, the students and with Rogers actually, um, uh, on exploring what 5G technologies can bring um, in terms of 
technological innovation, but also, um, and this is what I would like to, to focus on, but also in actually connecting people. So I'm, I'm thinking, for example, the, the project with um, the transit system uh, in, mm -hmm. uh, in Waterloo, so that you mentioned to me uh, previously. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, yeah, thank you, Christine. Um, so um, I, I guess I first want to comment on uh, one of Catherine's about comments about the human, kind of the human aspect, the human angle um, of technology is that um, typically um, some technologists like to um, blame users as the, the weakest chain, you know, whether that's security or just in terms of um, how they're using the technology in the way that is um, that ex expected. Um, I, as a as a human oriented researcher, um, I actually you know disagree with that perspective. Um, for me, technology needs to be designed um, with the human limitations in mind. Uh, we know as human beings, we have um, limitations, right? We have cognitive limitations. We have in terms of how we perceive things uh, in terms of our, our memorability, in terms of our, our, our you know, our interactions with, uh, with the different type of modalities. Um, so um, 5G has, um, I, I, I think there's, um, we know that as, as Alexander uh, described, that the network will deliver much faster data rates and much higher, much um, as signal responses, much, um, you know, uh, faster than compared to 4G networks. And, and these capability will enable a range of technologies, right? So um, I'm sure you heard of the word big data and internet of things, um, this type of technology. So we see these kind of been adopted in healthcare and, and smart cities and, uh, and transportation and, and manufacturing. Um, so my research look at uh, some of the, I guess, uh, the human factor issues as well as, uh, you know, from a privacy perspective, what are, what are some of these issues might be. Um, and, and as well as, I guess, a little bit from the policy um, perspective, perspective uh, as well. Um, so the, the number, we know that with this technology that the number of wireless antennas have to increase um, just because these number of, of Internet of Things devices evolve, could evolve dramatically with the introduction of 5G technology. Um, and, um, you know, as these number of connected devices increase, um, you can imagine that these, um, you know, small, small cell antennas are used to expand the network to, to meet this internet, uh, increased connected device, and they're installed in all kinds of infrastructure. And we already seen this in our homes, like smart devices and in our public infrastructure as well, like uh, smart streetlights, you know, bus shelters, public buildings. And there has been, you know, some concerns about um, how do we manage uh, this huge volume of data as well as the, the various um, stakeholders at these locations. Um, so... Um, you know, these, you know, regulations, um, you know, our, our, you know, Kenya regulation is, is not perfect, right? We're, we still have a lot of work to do. And it's also very slow is the, the uh, progress, right? So um, the, the worry is that the technology is advancing at a pace where policy simply just not keep up uh, with, with the regulating some of these, um, these type of data and, and people's privacy. 
Um, so um, I, I consider myself a, you know, a optimistic um, a researcher and, and, you know, technologist. And I, I, you know, often with my students, it's like, yes, we do have all of these challenges, but um, it's usually more productive to frame them as design opportunities. Um, so I, I teach interaction design. And um, one of the, maybe I can briefly talk about the project we're working on with Rogers is that. Yeah, please um, go ahead. Yeah, we're looking at um, uh, in terms of public transit, um, and uh, we're we're proposing to um, basically kind of uh, investigate how will you enhance the daily commute experience of public transit riders, right? So right now, if you look at public transit, regardless of whether you're on a train or let's say you're uh, even in the subway, um, you're not that kind of aware of your surrounding environment. So how do we use 5G to, to gather real-time data? Um, so if you think about it, um, you know, we, we saw that we're still at the early stages of this project, but we've been brainstorming ideas, like maybe like how do we inform users about all the wonderful businesses that are around these, these uh, bus stops to give a little bit of a boost um, to these businesses to, so they can get more visitors. Um, how do we, you know, send um, users real-time uh, transit information about delays and, um, and and even things like weather information? Um, so um, so we're kind of exploring that um, that context because transit is emotion, right? So I think five um, G, um, you know, with the constant. Um, motion and and change of location um and we timed that each i think at each stop the this the train only stops for um you know less maybe like 30 seconds something like that so it's a very short amount of time to to um to to gather data and perhaps to to enable user to 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 use them in a, a um, kind of be a context-dependent way. Um, so we're kind of exploring this area, you know, how can we leverage the 5G, 5G technology to enhance, you know, your daily commute experience? Mm -hmm. That's a, it's, it's really nice to hear um, a concrete examples where the students also play a role and uh, where they, I'm sure, have gained a, a pretty good understanding of what 5G uh, technology is and the potential of it. Um, uh, and then they've been able to apply that knowledge in, in this project. That's great. Um, in terms of privacy, so this is, I mean, it's obviously a, a very, very complex issue. Um, how how could we tackle it? And maybe, Alexander, you, you could help us with this a little bit, because, I mean, obviously your industry is highly regulated um, by the, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, by the, the government, and um, for good reasons, I think. Um, and I would like to hear a little bit from from you, uh, if if you don't mind, how what does that look like within your company? So obviously you 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 can't just make decisions; you have to be compliant with uh, uh, policy. Um, what are the biggest issues around privacy from a government perspective, and then what would be the point of view from the industry perspective? It's a really good question. Um... And yes, as you say, we are federally regulated. Our license is dependent upon this. <clears throat> and so we take it very seriously in that, you know, there's a, uh, a, an entire office uh, devoted to privacy. We have a, uh, a chief of privacy that does this every day. That's all they do. Um, 
So the question in terms of, from our perspective is, the technology is, as Leah mentioned, there's lots of capabilities there. We could do all manner of things in terms of opening up opportunities and uh, that, you know, that the technology is fully capable of doing down to, as Leah said, with small cells create uh, you know, a very you know, interesting opportunity for contextual everything from advertising to presentment of offers that people might want all the way down to literally, you know, a, a very small number of feet, particularly in 5G, because it's capable of doing that. So the real, what it nets down to, though, is, and, you know, if you add 5G, by the way, in terms of adding virtual reality and augmented reality, that how you present that information becomes, A, very exciting, and B, a little frightening. So depending, you know, the, so what it nets down to is we have lots of capabilities, it's really up to a partnership between the you know, end users who want to use the data and want opportunities to be informed or to, to access data and to do that contextually, the regulators, the application services providers, and ourselves and the government to all work in concert on this. We can't do this alone. No one party can do so. But ultimately, it does rest with, you know, for example, opt-in provisions. If somebody wants a, the, a capability, um, it should be that they can opt in. So for, I'll give you a, a little working example. Um, we don't track where people are. We know where people are to build them, but that's about it. We don't track them as they go in a particular area. So, for example, if you, uh, uh, if you make a call in Toronto and then drive to Montreal, we know you were in Toronto and you will know you were in Montreal. You must have got there somehow, but we don't track what's going on in between. Mm. However, having said that, to use Leah's example, what happens if you wanted some information about traffic, weather, etc., and can localize it down to a small area? Well, the capabilities are there. The question is, how does one present that and expose it as options? Um, we, Rogers owns... The, uh, the the Toronto Blue Jays go Blue Jays. Um, <laughs> we you know the we have at any one time there are lots and lots of people in the city of Toronto that might want to go to a game. The ability to inform them that there are seats, obviously, we can do that. The question is, have they opted in to do so? Are they you know? There's no point in telling somebody in Calgary that there's a Blue Jays game on. But if they're in downtown Toronto for the day and they'd like that information and they're, you know, link it into uh, the ability to find a parking spot and go for dinner and find a seat and buy memorabilia, we're back to Leah's comments on opportunities. The privacy part is how do you manage all of that in such a way that only the people who, you know, uh, uh, you know have, should have access to the information or have requested it get access to it. Um, the same thing goes for even for, you know, um, uh, uh, you know working with uh, AI and machine learning. When we, you know, we're moving towards digital IDs, slowly, but we are. Uh, different parts of the company, country are moving faster than others. It's still the case, though, that when you present a digital ID, it's not contextual. It's got all of the information on that ID. The fact that a driving license is digital 
doesn't mean that all the stuff that's on that driving license isn't, you know, when you show it, it's there. What happens if you could only show the context of if you if somebody walks into the LCBO and wants to buy a bottle of wine, and you know, carding is a fairly messy process right now. But what happens if the only contextual piece of information is you are you, you're old enough to buy this bottle of wine, link it to the credit card, away you go. No other information needs to get exchanged. So it's and that from a you know linking the technology and 5G and small cells and real-time communications fulfills an opportunity and a uh, but the whole package has to be put together and say, somebody has to say, yes, all the pono, all that string of pearls has to come together and say, yes, it's inviolate. And only the people that should get that information should get it. Are we fulfilled part of that role? The net massive network encryption, intrusion, uh, you know, prevention is part of our DNA. We do it every day. Um, right. But the opportunities that Claire mentioned that's where we try and start. Okay, what do people want to do? Yeah. So what, what I'm what I'm hearing. Yeah, that, that's a, a great answer. The, what what I'm what I'm hearing then again is the key here is to work towards um, customization, right? So the the opt in and opt out model, and then customizing it to the intended purpose, right? Correct. So what what I wonder though is when we move into the health sector. Um, this takes on a, a whole different uh, level of importance, right? And again, I mean, all the questions right now around what kind of information should or could or shouldn't we share um, around our vaccine status, let's say, um, has opened up <clears throat> the doors to a whole new debate around privacy issues, which will become a lot more acute, as you have just pointed out, Alexander. Um, with 5G technologies, because there will be so much data collection um, that we need to think through this carefully. So I would really like to hear your take on this, Catherine, to, to see if, if uh, you agree with Alexander that the um, kind of the, the approach that, for example, uh, uh, Rogers is, taken, um, is taking towards a customizable, if I can use that word, and an opt-in, opt-out kind of a basis, would that work in in the healthcare sector? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christine, I think what Alexander said is is exactly the way things are going. The reality is we're dealing with this already. You know, already five G. Maybe three G was didn't have enough capability that it wasn't in our face as much, but we're already dealing with it, right? Um, you know, and I think you know we're seeing a few things. You know, I guess what I'd say is our providers and our applications, they have beyond opt-in, opt-out, I think there's also a bit of responsibility for some good privacy stewardship. You know, they need to start from a safe position is what I would say, uh, and then allow people to opt in. But what we're also seeing is that people's attitudes towards privacy change with context, right? Okay, people are willing to give up privacy to access services. Okay, they give up a lot to be on Facebook. <laughs> I, I I agree. This is if I can. I mean, we we talked about this earlier um, uh, before the the event started. I mean, I, I had this conversation with my students, and um, yeah. a lot of them actually think that the whole issue of privacy is just 
too far gone already and um, you know really to rein it back in doesn't make any sense because we we often willingly like you just say said um, provide all kinds of private information on on uh, social media and yeah. etc right and it's totally um, yeah, interesting like when we work in healthcare you know we did a study a couple of years ago looking at information sharing and if somebody's facing a really life-threatening disease they're willing to share that pretty broadly to get some help okay? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah you know so it's all this cost and benefit what do i get for giving you my information right and if it's yeah. going to help me and it crosses a threshold for me which is alexander's opt-in you opt-in right um, yeah just, just yeah. to build on that. a safe position and then give people that opportunity because they may not make they don't always make the decisions that we think they're going to make Right. Right. Yeah. Just to go ahead, Alexander. Point for a second, which is mm -hmm. one of the things that 5G and we're moving to that does that the previous generations didn't is the ability to meld a wireless network with edge compute. In other words, the, the yeah. contextuality of what is being delivered can literally be drilled down to that specific person, that specific area. And the only the information in terms of pulling apart what is required to be known and what is absolutely not required to be known. And so because you can resolve down to much smaller units of, uh, of connectivity than you could in previous generations, it opens up the ability to do exactly what Catherine just outlined, which is, okay, um, what is required then right then and there for this application right now. And then it's gone and it's off the table. The combinations of 5G and some other concepts like a mobile edge compute, which is essentially think of it as a data center at every cell site and uh, you know, uh, other elements like network slicing, which is a concept where you literally can dedicate a, a type of application, uh, some bandwidth to an application. All of those are capable and combine that with AI. Now you have some very interesting opportunities to back to customization that the individual and uh, or the service uh, you know, healthcare provider or whatever can determine, but you can actually resolve them in real time. And that's something we couldn't do before. Right, right. So I'm wondering then, um, and this this is perhaps something uh, where you have expertise, and I, I think Leah, is there a way to bake in um, solutions to privacy right from the get go in terms of design? Yeah. Um, so in other words, I, I know that um, in often what happens is that we we design uh, apps, for example, or we design um, uh, uh, digital solutions uh, for a specific problem. But the ethics question comes in fairly late in the game. And I'm just wondering if there is a way, um, a methodology, let's say, to bring it in right at the beginning so that it's an integral part of whatever it is that you are designing for. Yeah, so that, that concept of uh, privacy, you know, kind of as, as the default uh, concept is part of the, the privacy by design uh, approach. Um, so this approach uh, essentially just uh, means that when creating new technologies and systems, um, privacy is incorporated into the, you know, the design of the system by de default from the get-go, uh, along with whatever other purpose that the system serves. And um, 
So there are seven foundational principles. Um, um, I'll give you examples. So one of them is um, proactive, not reactive. Um, I think this approach basically, you know, a, a, the system should anticipate and prevents privacy breaches before they happen. Um, and uh, and we can only do this if you know um, uh, the ideal. Uh, situation when is that privacy has been integrated into the product and you know security is a priority from the beginning of the design process uh, and the privacy has def uh, by default is another principle that ensures uh, you know personal data are are automatically protected in any system of business practice right if that data data is not required um, uh, as Alexander mentioned it's not required by the surface we sh we should prevent from oversharing of the user's inf information, basically only um, share the um, essential information in, in order to enable um, user, user access, what to use that system. And um, privacy less embedding to design is, um, as, is, is another principle. So there's a, a few more of these, um, but kind of there, the limitation of this approach, as I can see it now from my interaction design perspective is that this basically, for me, it's a framework, it's a mindset to privacy mm -hmm. by design, but there's very little concrete guidelines for, let's say for my students, for you know, interaction design practitioners um, to put this into their design practice. So that these principles, you know, they all sound really good to tell us what we should do, but we don't really have a sense of how to do this. Okay, so let's let's just before you go on, I just want to make sure I I, I get this question in <laughs> before we we get to the end. Um, since we have industry representation here, let's just see how closely um, the university and industry align on this. So, Alexander, any of what Leah is saying around the methodologies that already exist and the principles that she, for example, uses, is this something that you would use in industry? Yeah, uh, are you? Familiar with the? Go ahead. Yes, we we, we are, and I, I I agree that you know. Um, I also would also agree, by the way, to paraphrase the uh, the opening video that if you ask, um, you know, ten people to des describe privacy and security, um, uh, you'll get twenty different answers as opposed to eleven with uh, uh, yeah. on, on what you can do. <clears throat> um, the 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 answer is yes. It has to be. You you have to start with a security and privacy perspective. And uh, each successive generation of technology on, on, uh, from a, a wireless perspective has focused on that. Um, you know, the, the degree to which uh, transactions um, uh, and, and you know, data sessions that carry everything are encrypted and the way in which that encryption is pu pushed across the network has improved on every successive generation. Um, the privacy element to it is uh, the how should I put it the icing on that in the sense that once you've got something secure, the real question then is what methodology do you use to expose what you need to expose or what you're requested to expose? What I completely agree with Leah on is there's no one formal methodology that everybody subscribes to that says this is the way one will do it. It is messy, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the approaches. We get different ones 
uh, every day from uh, you know industrial customers, uh, from government, and uh, and from into, uh, you know individual companies that show up at our door saying we'd like to do the following. How are you going to help us with privacy of our data? Um, it is a very specific uh, area uh, that has been looked at because of the rise of so-called private net wireless networks, where it's literally self-contained. The data never leaves the area. Right. Um, right. And so there's a whole new set of capabilities that, that are being developed to, to ensure that. So mm -hmm. if you have a, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a natural resources, whether it's a mine or, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a hydro installation, they want their own version of that. So it spans the individual all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, they're all looking at it differently. But no, there isn't one methodology, but there are some basic principles, some, uh, some of which Leah just outlined, that we try to adopt. And yes, it's part of the design process. You can't, sorry, correction. You can do it retroactively, but it's very expensive and it's disruptive um, uh, and it never works the same way as if you'd actually decided to do this at the beginning. So no, it is a fundamental component of design. Okay, that's that's really good to hear. Um, Leah, final word on, on this, um, if you want to react to what Alexander just said. Um, I, I, I think from this perspective, right, so, um, you know, okay, I guess going back to the um, collaboration between stakeholders, um, I, I really, I guess one of the things I try to relate to my um, relate to my students is that there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, perhaps non-privacy professionals in this space, right? It's just not just a matter of law and, and policy. Um, we will not only need more privacy professional, but also specialized people or, or professionals that have an in-depth knowledge of specific topics like user experience design. But right now, it's so hard to find a UX designer with, let's say, with a privacy or security background, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, and I think I don't see, um, you know, um, I, I think this is something that should be embedded uh, basically into the curriculum. Um, or um, And I think there's we are moving towards that. But um, I think that's that's the only way to sort of enhance uh, cross-discipline knowledge of this area Then how people can, can start collaborate and, and understanding these the, yeah. the multifaceted dimensions of, of this issue. Yeah. I so I, I think, add, so I would definitely <laughs> add combining that with uh, AI and machine learning, particularly for, you know, university yes. or flu, because the, the reality of what we're seeing is the ability for humans to do this in real time is getting lesser and lesser each day. You were going to have to uh, to to use and utilize uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to you know to to do to work this problem and to work the opportunity in real time with many more facets than we're, than we're capable of actually juggling in any any individual or any group. So I'd add that to the curriculum as well. Yeah. So this is now we're really getting into questions of uh, posthumanism. <laughs> Things like that. So before we get to that, um, let's let's uh, end it here. But I think the big takeaway um, is that we are entering, um, I would say, a, 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 well, clearly a new phase in technological development, and a little bit more in on a small in a smaller context. Um, it's super exciting um, to see 
that uh, the university and uh, companies such as Rogers uh, can collaborate uh, very, very well on, on these issues and um, uh, can benefit from each other's contributions. So um, I would like to, to thank all of you very, very much for uh, your amazing contributions today. Um, and um, this is not the end of the, the discussion, obviously. Um, I'm just going to hand it back over to uh, Joanne Shoveler just uh, uh, for a few minutes, and then we'll have our discussion. But I see just Alexander, go ahead. Of Rogers, thank yeah. you uh, to the partnership between Rogers and the University of Waterloo. Uh, we're incredibly excited by it. Um, and uh, if, there's, if there's more that we can do, we're very happy to do so. It's... Uh, it, it, it's uh, now, we're very pleased by the ability to, to bring 5G to the university and to partner on projects. So thank you to the faculty and to the students. Yeah, and thank you. Hey, it's Meg. I hope that you liked our first event recording episode. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you. If you've been listening to the episodes in this podcast feed, I would love to hear your feedback on them. Which ones did you love? Is there something we could do better? Do you want to hear more event recordings like this one? Send your thoughts to alumni at uwaterloo.ca and include podcast feedback in the subject line. I will read them all and we'll take them into account when making future episodes. Thanks so much. Uncharted Warriors in the World is written and produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Carlos Saavedra is our editor. Carlos and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.